All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Exodus 20, and uh, you'll want to put your finger there because I'm going to look at Deuteronomy 5 as well. Our message today is called One in Seven, and uh, I'll just say up front, um, I needed like four hours of a sermon to really deal with the topic, so I'm really trying. I tried my best this week to boil this down. Uh, It was somewhat of a chaotic week, and so by no means are you to walk away thinking, oh, that's everything there is to the topic. Why would you assume such a thing? Uh, so just know that there are aspects to this that I would have loved to develop further. Um, it's just in the interest of time, I couldn't. So afterwards, um, while we're getting communion stuff ready, and we can perhaps have a couple questions and we can maybe unpack it for a minute. But um, other than that, just know that on the front end uh, that I really would have loved to have had way more time to, to deal with this issue. Um, but let's go ahead and read our text and then I'll pray. Exodus 20. And that is in verses 8 through 11. And then we will flip over to Deuteronomy. And I want you to pay attention to what's, what's different about Deuteronomy uh, than Exodus. Exodus 20, verse 8. These are the words of God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now flip over to Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. And already we have a difference here with the very first word. Not remember, but observe. Deuteronomy 5.12 Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any, other, uh, any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well. Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we are incredibly thankful for the gift of Sabbath rest as we are partakers of redemption and the great work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask and pray today that we would be reminded of this rest and that our lives would be, in fact, marked by it. Help us as we look to your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. <clears throat> now up until this point in the Ten Commandments, we have had negative commands. Thou shalt have no other gods, uh, no graven images for worship, that sort of thing. And the third one, which we covered last week, was that you're not supposed to. The negative command is, we are not to take the Lord's name in vain or profane the name. And it's worth repeating that just because they are posited here in a negative fashion does not mean that there isn't a positive aspect to the law either. The command to have no other gods before Yahweh is simultaneously, like the second commandment, the second word, it is also a positive command to honor, worship, and serve Yahweh appropriately and soberly on His covenantal terms. So it's not good enough to just walk around and say, no, you shouldn't have any other gods. Well, there's something required of you positively. 
Your life should look like that, positively, like you have no other gods, that sort of thing. And that principle of negative aspects and positive aspects, something Rush Dooney points out in his Institutes of Biblical Law, that's true for all the ten words. All the ten words. And, and the reason this is the case is because God's law is an objective standard that demands everything from man. It's a, and it's an objective standard that demands everything. It's not just, you know, don't take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was do what God had commanded Adam to do. So, and that's because it's an objective standard. We are not in the position ever to pick and choose uh, what we want to obey and what we don't want to obey. Yahweh is the father in this situation, and Israel is the son. And we know that Scripture tells us to do the law of God, according to Scripture, is life. So Proverbs 4.4 says, Let your heart hold fast to my words, keep my commandments, and live. There are other Proverbs verses that say a similar thing. Now, based on the objectivity of the law as a revelation of God himself, that's what the law is, God revealed himself, we can conclude that its presence, God's law, his, God's, um, the law of God, the law's presence in this sin-tainted world is meant to divide. And it's like a sword, it cuts deep. And really read Hebrews 4, verse 12. It's like a sword, it cuts deep. Which is to say that it leaves no ethical conundrum or question in the dark. There's no neutrality. The sword cuts clean through, and you're either on one side of that sword or you're on the other. There, there's no accidental middle ground residue left over, that sort of thing. And, and that's because God's law clearly shows what it means to be an outlaw. An outlaw is someone who's outside the law, right? They're sort of an illegally outside the law, that sort of thing. And it clearly shows what it means to be in law, in the law. And so the negative aspect, think of it like this, the negative aspect of the law when it says thou shalt not, that's there to guard you against sin. It's like parents, when you give your kids instructions on what not to do, you're, you're, that's a blessing to them. It should be. Because if you touch the hot stove, what happens? Ouch. So, you know, a child could look at, wow, you're really mean. You won't let me touch the stove. Well, you're really foolish because if you do, you're going to burn your hand and it's going to be terrible. That sort of thing. The negative aspect of the law is to prevent sin or prevent destruction. The positive aspect of the law is there to promote righteousness and justice in the world. So the negative, thou shalt not, staves off sin. It keeps us at, you know, keeps sin at bay, keeps danger at bay. The positive aspects of the law are to promote righteousness and justice. So kind of keep that in your, in your mind, and, and we need both. Now, today we have the fourth word, which is a positive command. We're told to remember in Exodus and observe in Deuteronomy the Sabbath, to remember the Sabbath, and with that, we're to keep it holy. So there isn't a thou shalt not in this command, just like in the fifth word next week, honor your father and mother, there isn't a negative command. God didn't say, don't disrespect your parents. He said positively, honor your father and mother. And there's a reason for it. We'll see next week. But, uh, so the, we're told to remember and keep the Sabbath. And, of course, the negative is implied, right? Don't forget. <laughs> don't fail to observe the Sabbath. And don't profane it. 
but we're told to keep it holy. And this is, of course, by the way, not without controversy. Again, I'm going to do my best to simplify the issue and hopefully paint a vision for the future as we go. So let's look at our text again. I want you to notice in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then he explains. This is so far the same as uh, Deuteronomy, except for the change of words. Exodus again says, remember the Sabbath day. Deuteronomy says, observe the Sabbath day. So that's a slight change, but the point is the same. Keep it holy. There's something about the Sabbath that we are to actively engage in, something we're supposed to honor and respect and adhere to, and we're supposed to keep it holy. Exodus and Deuteronomy both say, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Whatever normal stream of income is your normal work, you have six days to get it done. That's the idea here. Um, And with that, though, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So it puts us towards something, that being God himself. And then you're not to do any work. Nobody in your family is to do work. Your son or daughter, your female male servants, nobody. The ox, don't let them do any work, that sort of thing. That's all embedded in, in here and you know, make sure that you're, you're keeping that in check. Even the sojourner within the land, what we today might call an immigrant or someone who has some legal rights who hasn't quite fully been brought into immigration and the naturalization process, um, that none, of them to, none of them to work. But Exodus says, six days the Lord made heaven and earth. Goes back to creation. Deuteronomy says, guess what? You were slaves in Egypt. That's the main difference between the two, and there's a reason. Remember, Exodus was given in the desert at Mount Sinai to the people of God, but the first generation all died out. The second generation had to go and have another law given to them, same law, but uh, uh, give it to them a second time. That's what Deuteronomy means, is the second giving of the law. They gave it to the next generation so that they could be reminded, hey, don't forget, your parents were slaves in Egypt. So don't, don't forget that. They were slaves in Egypt. This is what God did to your parents. Never forget it. They knew the creation story. God worked six days, rested on the seventh. They knew that. But what they didn't know, or shall we say didn't experience, is what their parents had experienced. So that's part of the reason why there's a difference here. So Exodus tells us to remember, to keep it holy. Deuteronomy says to observe it and keep it holy. And the reasons are there are different. I want to explain this a little bit more. The Exodus passage acknowledges the creational ordinance. The creational ordinance. Uh, Moses is reminding them, hey, God made the earth. God made everything in six days. You, and he rested on the seventh. That's the creational ordinance. We work six days. We rest on the seventh. And the seventh day is there and it's holy, God made it holy, and God blessed it. So there's a blessing involved from God when we acknowledge it. Deuteronomy, again, couches the reasoning for working six days and and then resting on the seventh inside the Exodus story. Israel had been slaves in Egypt. God redeemed them and rescued them. Therefore, they are to practice Sabbath and to keep it. And by the way, to keep it has this language of consecrated, hollow it, Remember the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. We're we're to make it holy. It's set apart. It's meant to be something different, something special, something useful, that sort of thing. Now, when we put these words, these things together, we see first 
that the rhythm or pattern of Sabbath is first creational. It's creational, meaning that God himself set the rhythm of life while marking out time in this fashion from the very beginning. Okay, so when you talk about Sabbath law through Moses, it didn't start with Moses and the Mount Sinai experience. It started with God and creation. God built this rhythm into creation. He himself set the pattern. Second, when we consider the redemptive aspect, and that's what Deuteronomy is emphasizing, when we consider the redemptive aspect of, of the Sabbath, we realize that the Sabbath points to this very paradigm, the rescue and redemption of man in man's world. So Exodus emphasizes the creational rhythm, six days, seventh day rest. Exodus says, well, in that, God redeems, God rescues, God saves. He moves people out of that and into, into his rest, and that's a redemptive, a redemptive act. So it is God's world, absolutely, but man was created to take care of it. Man was called to work and keep it. That's the language of Genesis 2. And yet we know Genesis 3 happened, right? Sin entered into the world and polluted what God had done, hence the need for redemption. Now, the, world, the word Sabbath literally means rest, rest or seizing. Shabbat in Hebrew. The, the, the word just it means that. It's this idea of resting or um, seizing something. You, you were doing something and then you seize. That's the Shabbat. That's, you take a break from it. Father Yahweh commands his son Israel to memorialize and remember and observe a day of seizing. That is, a discontinued time away from normal work. The entire social structure of Israel was told to pause for one day in seven. One day in seven. No one was to do any work on the seventh day. <laughs> Just like when I say the entire social structure... It's emphasized here. No one does work, not even your animals. No one is to do work, not even your animals. It reminds me of Jonah when the whole city of Nineveh was in repentance, even the animals. <laughs> um, that idea, like the whole social order of it was struck with repentance. Um, and that doesn't mean the dogs came confessing their sins, by the way. I don't think they can do that. Uh, so one in seven, no one was to do any work, not your animals, not the strangers, not the sojourners in the land, no one. If you are a foreigner and you are walking through the open borders of Israel, you had to practice Sabbath. You needed to seize. You were not allowed to usurp the order of Israel. Uh, you may not have been a fully naturalized citizen because citizenship in Israel was covenantal. It, it wasn't what we have today with all the red tape and bureaucracy. Um, but, it, but it was covenantal. But you still had to honor it because you're in Israel's territory. And when you're in Israel's territory, you rest one day in seven. So the social order was, was on hold. Everything stopped one day in seven as a way of memorializing both God's creative handiwork and God's powerful redemption. It's built within creation and God saved our ancestors. That's the idea here. And we should also say that it was eschatological in that it had to do with the keeping of time. How do we even keep time? I mean, many of us have our phones or watches and we sort of just keep time that way. But, you know, that's a modern thing. How did you keep time? Whether that's the moon, the lunar calendar, you, you kept time. But one of, the, one of the ways you kept time was Sabbath. That's how they kept time. And Israel and Christians today 
in other words, in one day and seven, aren't showing up for work. Now, here we learn that work is a good thing. Work is a, is a good thing. It was always a good thing. God gave Adam and Eve work to accomplish, and that was to be celebrated. But work for the sake of work is bad. Work for the sake of work is bad. Work for the sake of God is good. The Sabbath then interrupts, that's Karl Barth's language, interrupts the goodness of work in order to celebrate the goodness of the giver of work. Sabbath interrupts the goodness of work in order to stop and celebrate the giver of work. To cease working and trust in God's provision is to acknowledge one's subordination to the creator and the sustainer of all things. That's what Sabbath does ultimately. It acknowledges that God is sovereign, not us. We can't work and work and work. You'll end up killing yourself. People die of heat, heat exhaustions. They, I mean, my dad for several years worked seven days a week uh, on a third shift. And, it, and it, that was the worst time of his life, I think, his health. And, and thankfully, he was able to get out of that. But we're not to do that. We're, we can't do that. <clears throat> if you can't hear the Lord, it's because there's probably too much work going on in your life. Some of you may feel like that. I'm in a season where I'm not hearing for the Lord. Well, you're probably not Sabbathing well. You're not resting well. If you're not hearing from the Lord, there's probably too much time, too much work going on. There's, you're, not being, you're, not, you're not letting your rhythm be interrupted enough. You're not keeping time appropriately, perhaps. More on that later. Now, the culture of Israel was supposed to be patterned and structured in a certain way. And the Ten Commandments tells us what that means. We see an example of that in Exodus 16. You might remember the story of manna in the wilderness. Israel was to gather the provisions they needed, the manna in the wilderness, for six days. And on the seventh day, they stopped collecting. Well, there wasn't any to collect at that point, but the manna wasn't there. They, they seized. They stopped collecting. And the stopping of manna collection and work is to surrender full trust to the, to the God that you claim to worship. That's what you do when you cease working and you rest. In a way, you are surrendering to the full trust of the God that you claim to worship. The one in seven pattern, what we call Sabbath, is meant to slow us down and make us recognize that we are finite, utterly dependent creatures with severe limitations and needs. I'll say it again. The one in pattern, the one in seven pattern, what we call Sabbath, is meant to slow us down and make us recognize that we are finite, utterly dependent creatures with severe limitations and needs. When we realize this, we, we are compelled to trust in the sovereignty of God. I mean, if you think you can do it all, what are you going to do? Burn yourself out. And then we all get to point and laugh at you because we tried to tell you, but you didn't, you didn't listen. Sabbath simply says that God is the giver and we are the receivers and we glory in that. When sin comes in, we, we try to pretend that God's not the giver. And as N.T. Wright said, Sabbath is God's time, tabernacle and temple is God's space. That was the Israelite understanding. And both of those things converge on Jesus, as we'll see. A couple more observations about the passage. First, the Sabbath day in Israel was a boundary that shouldn't be crossed. 
It was a boundary that shouldn't be crossed. When Israel failed to acknowledge the Sabbath, they were effectively stealing from God, which was a violation of the Eighth Commandment, the Eighth Word. This violation, along with a violation of the Jubilee principle, would eventually get them into trouble as God would use Assyria and then later Babylon to conquer Israel and Judah. And if you go back later, you can write this down if you want, but I would go back and read Ezekiel 20 if you want to later tonight. Take some time, read Ezekiel 20 because the Sabbath violations are right there. You chose not to honor the Jubilee. You chose not to honor the Sabbath. You chose to pollute it, and God brought judgment, and the Sabbath violation is one of the reasons. Now, the other thing to note is that in keeping with the theme of Father Yahweh teaching his son Israel how to act and behave, the Sabbath was something to be mimicked and therefore practiced. The father rests, so the son should rest. The, the son the son of Israel, remember Israel's story, they were working tirelessly in Egypt as slaves, making bricks. And if you, go, if you read Exodus 1 with those set of eyes, you can't unsee that now. It's emphasized over and over again. They're working with no rest, working with no rest, making bricks, then later without straw, making it harder. They were being treated poorly. <clears throat> and, but Yahweh, we know, rescued them out. Yahweh rescued his son, and then he gave them rest as children of God. That's how we're supposed to understand the Exodus story. The Exodus was a Sabbath redemption. No rest was found in Egypt. Father Yahweh gives rest to his son in the land of promise. And we are called to rest, and we are called to give rest. We're called to give rest. That's the pattern. Work is implied, absolutely, but rest is commanded. As a son of Yahweh and as covenant members of him, the son was to give rest to everyone in the land, including, as I already mentioned, the animals and the immigrants. When rest is given, rest must be given to others. You've been given a gift. What do you do with the gift? You give it to other people. The gift is passed on. The law of God calls for justice and mercy, the releasing of debts and indentured servants, the giving back of land to the original owners after a certain period of time. That was the Jubilee and so on. Well, what you call the Sabbath of Sabbaths. Um, when you're a farmer, you should plow your field six years and rest on the seventh. And by the way, in modern day parlance, we know that part of the reason is to give the soil rest because the soil needs time to rejuvenate so that you can have good crops. In other words, the Sabbath was and is the conduit through which the people of God bring the redemption of God's grace to a world of unrest. A world of unrest. Let's consider some of this some more. Our world today, I think it's safe to say, knows nothing of rest. Our world today knows nothing of rest. The 24-hour news cycle, along with access to the world in your pocket, means that everything, all the information you could ever want is there, it's accessible, and it puts us on information overload. Adrenal fatigue, which is a real thing, can be much, very much a normal thing today. Just you blow out your adrenal glands because you're just grinding away and you end up having other health problems. That's, that's a thing. And due to this overwhelming flood of information and our culture of constant living in a frenzy, and due to our active ignoring of the principle of the Sabbath, we are in large part falling apart as a frazzled people and as a burnt out culture. I think it's self-evident. I don't know if I need to prove that to you. I think it's pretty self-evident. 
And part of the reason that that's the case is because we are not machines to be tamed. We are not machines to be tamed. We are image bearers who must rest. See, rest itself in Scripture isn't just ceasing from work, although that's part of it. When we talk about the Sabbath day being a day of rest, the ceasing is meant to exemplify something else, namely the redemption and liberation of Jesus Christ, what the gospel gives us. When Hebrews 4.9 says, and Emberly read this earlier, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, the right, what the writer is telling us is that there is a principle of redemption which is symbolized in the resting on a particular day, and that is still valid and it's still important. I'm not a high Sabbatarian where I'm, you know, you can't even look at another person on the Sabbath. <laughs> you know, you're not allowed to play a video game or you're not allowed to play cards or you're not even allowed to. I'm not a high Sabbatarian. I don't think you can make that argument. But I'm also not someone who thinks that the Sabbath is unimportant and it's just like any other day. I think there still is a principle moving forward. I'm just laying my cards out on the table here. I think Hebrews 4.9 tells us that. And, and what Hebrews says is there still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I think what we're getting at is God still tells time this way. God still uses it as a way of telling creational time. We cease from our labors as a sign and symbol of our faith and our trust in Christ's finished work at the cross. When you, when you refuse to cease working as a Christian, you are essentially saying the cross wasn't sufficient. It's tied to that. The ceasing of work the particular day is tied to that idea of resting in the finished work of Christ. Karl Barth writes this. He says, What does the Sabbath commandment say? It speaks of a limiting of man's activity to the extent that this is, generally speaking, his own work, his own undertaking and achievement, the job he does for his livelihood and in the service of the community. It says that in deference to God and to the heart and meaning of his work, there must be from time to time an interruption, a rest, a deliberate non-continuation, a temporal pause to reflect on God and his work and to participate consciously in the salvation provided by him and to be awaited from him. It says, this is Bart, it says that man's own work is to be performed as a work bounded by his continually recurring interruption. This interruption is the holy day, end quote. There are, however, many questions that we need to cover in light of this. <clears throat> we changed, the question is, what changed in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, with regard to the Sabbath day? Because you have Seventh-day Adventists and even some modern Christians who say, no, the Saturday is still the Sabbath, Friday night to Saturday night. What changed? And I'm going to tell you why that changed. What changed with regard to the Sabbath day? There are clearly aspects of the Old Covenant that are no longer binding on us today. How do we know what those are? These are the questions I, I'm hoping to answer. As I've already mentioned, <clears throat> there are various aspects to the Sabbath principle itself. There's a creational emphasis, you know, God for, for God built that within the framework of the entire cosmos. There is a mosaic emphasis, which pertained to Israel's ceremonies surrounding festivals and Sabbaths and so on. Um, there there was a Sabbath day, but then there were special Sabbaths. There were ex extended Sabbath days around Passover, uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement from Leviticus 16. There were various Sabbaths. It's not just one Sabbath you know, in one day in seven. There were many different Sabbaths 
By the way, Paul says in Romans 14 that we're not supposed to quibble uh, about those types of things anymore. And I think what he means is the Sabbaths, because he says it plural, the Sabbaths connected to the ceremonies, like Passover, like the festivals, the Feast of Weeks, and so on, um, what we call Pentecost. So I think Paul says, no, we don't, those are not, you know, if you want to teach your kids how to do a Passover meal because you think it's illustrative, fine. But that's not a command for the New Testament Christian. You, some people today, they, they get back, they get, they love to blow the shofar. There's nothing wrong with a shofar. It's actually an interesting thing that they use, but it's not, that's not like an extra spiritual thing. You keeping Passover or you teaching your kids about Hanukkah, which came in about second century BC, not even in the Old Testament. So there's nothing wrong illustratively or to teach them, fine. But as far as demanding that people practice it, you're way outside the bounds of Romans 14. Now, those aspects to the Sabbath, the ceremonies, the festivals, all of those are abolished in Christ, who is our Sabbath rest. Now, the temple, the land, the ceremonies, as I said, they were all pointers to Jesus and the gospel. So those types of things that were attached to the moral law, uh, excuse me, the Mosaic law, those would be abolished in Christ. But here's the other thing. We all, we're I mean, that's what I'm teaching here. The moral law as revealed in the Ten Commandments is still binding on Christians. So how in the world do we reconcile those things, especially when it comes to the Sabbath day? Well, here's how. There are moral components which are situated within the, other, just like the other nine commandments. That's what we call the moral law. How do we think about the Sabbath in light of that? Well, here's, I'm going to do my best to explain this. And again, I need like three more hours, but here we go. Go back with me to the Garden of Eden for a moment. And I'm building off of some of what Gary North says in his book, The Sinai Strategy, which is our recommended book for this week. And though I differ with him slightly on some things, uh, overall, I think, I think what he, he says is very compelling, shall we say. North argues, and I agree, that Adam and Eve sinned on their first day of full life, the first day the first full day of life, which was actually God's seventh day, the Sabbath day of rest. Okay, so think, think about it like this. They were cre- when was man created? Anybody, kids, do you, know, do you remember the creation story? Anybody remember what day man and woman was created? Seventh, seventh day was God's day of rest. Go back one more. Six. Six. Okay, good. A little homeschool test here. Uh, Everything else was created, and then you get to the sixth day, which is when Adam and Eve, Adam, Ha-Adam in, he, in Hebrew, just Adam, what we call Adam, as a real historical person, he was created on the sixth day at some point. We have him naming the animals. Later, he's not found a helper suitable, so God later made Eve. So the first full day of their life was supposed to be the Sabbath day of rest. Then and only then could they go and they labor. Their rest was to start. Rest was always to be the start of their week. It was God's seventh day, but it would have been their first day. So we rest, then we labor, that sort of paradigm. We abide in God first by abiding by his time and his timetable, and only afterwards does the dominion come, the working and keeping of the garden in the world. That's the pattern. Now, this meant that Adam and Eve rejected, when they sinned on that day, they rejected the gift of Sabbath, which stood for God's sovereignty and authority over creation. 
And instead, they wanted to be gods themselves, as we know from Genesis 3-5, knowing and determining good and evil on their own. So um, think, of, think of it like this. When God put his feet up and, and rested on the seventh day, it's not like God was tired, right? N no one believes that. God was just utterly exhausted. He, he overextended himself, frankly, creating everything by speaking. Um, and he needed a day to just chill. No, that's not why. When God rested, God stopped, looked at the creation, called it good, and what did he do? He affirmed in that resting, in that seizing, not only that creation was good, but that he himself was Lord over it. This is a king who was done. So Adam and Eve were supposed to rest in this kingship as priests and prophets and kings, but they sinned and they usurped God's authority in that moment and said they wanted to be gods themselves. So ethically and morally, they rebelled against God. And part of that rejection was his authority and his telling of time. So instead of resting and trusting in God's provisions and then working from there, Adam and Eve chose to, to usurp God's sovereign authority and lordship. And guess what God did? He cursed their work. You want to be like me? Okay, you will work. But guess what? Your work is going to be really difficult. You, you don't want my lordship? Okay, it's going to be very challenging. The serpent was sent to, to, to crawl in the dust of the ground forever. Uh, the, the, um, the woman, childbearing would be difficult. The man, you will, you will basically exist with sweat on your brow the entire time. Because guess what? You're dust and to dust you shall return. They rejected his lordship, so God cursed the ground. You want to work and then rest? You want to be Lord? Okay, deal with it. And as a sanction against them, they had to work six days. They had to then rest at the end of the week. And that work would be marked by difficulty and frustration. Now, this breach of the covenant, we know, was restored by Christ. Christ is the second Adam. Now, in Old Testament language, the Torah, the law, was the way, the truth, and the life. But Jesus shows up in the New Testament administration, and we learn that he is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life. John 14 tells us. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am Torah. I am law. I am the way, the truth, and life. And the events of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday not only repaired the covenant breach that Adam and Eve had, had, had achieved, it sets forth a new creation week and pushes us into the future. And here's what I mean. Jesus was crucified on Friday afternoon. He was crucified on Friday afternoon, the very end of the six-day week. That's not insignificant. Okay, Here's the son of Adam, the, the second Adam, coming. And at the end of the six-day week, what did these guys do to him as a result of his work? They put him on a cross. They wanted him dead. Jesus died on, the, on, that, on, that, on that Friday late afternoon. His body was taken down before sunset, you recall, because the Jews did not want to desecrate the Sabbath, which started on Friday night. That is not unironic. They wanted his body off the cross. We don't want to desecrate the Sabbath, so we got to take him down. And where did they put Jesus on that Sabbath? Where did they put him after they took him down off the cross? Anybody remember, kids? Where? A tomb. Okay, follow me here. This is significant, highly significant. 
When Jesus went into the tomb, the Torah, the law, went into the tomb. That's my argument. The Mosaic rituals with its Sabbath, its expressions along with the Levitical priesthood, all of the accompanying ritual sacrifices, temple sacrifices, all of that was buried in the tomb with Jesus. Now remember when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, to telestai, one word in Greek, it is finished. He gave up his spirit and he died. Anyone else? This is a great homeschooling quiz here. Anybody remember what happened in the temple in the Holy of Holies the minute Jesus died? There was something hanging there that was torn from top to bottom. Do you remember? The, yeah, the temple curtain or the veil, sometimes it's called. It was torn from the top to bottom, a very thick piece of fabric that you just can't tear from top to bottom. God ripped it down. That's an impossible feat in human terms. God tore it. The old covenant was finished along, along with Christ, and, and along with Christ, they were buried in the tomb. So their Sabbath day, the day of rest, they did the most grotesque thing possible. They killed the Son of Man. They put him in a tomb on the Sabbath, believing him to be silenced. If you want to know why the Sabbath day changed from Saturday to Sunday and why the Seventh-day Adventists are just completely wrong on this issue, this is the reason why. The old order was buried with Christ, and when he rose from the dead, it stayed buried. Jesus was raised on Sunday morning, the dawn of a new creation week, the first day of the week. And this second Adam had restored what Adam had ransacked. Man's week was always supposed to start with rest. I'm getting bit again. Man's week was always supposed to start with rest and redemption, but sin had perverted that. And now in Christ, guess what? We have it again. We have it again. The Jewish, Jewish leaders had desecrated the last Sabbath in history. The last Seventh-day Sabbath in history was that weekend Christ died and rose from the dead. They had desecrated it. Remember what they did to his grave? They sealed it. They sealed it shut because they wanted him to stay dead. They did, and, and, and in order to see that they, they didn't want anything to do with that. They sealed his grave in order to see to it that his resurrection and the new world order in a true biblical sense he would bring, they wanted that to never happen. They didn't want a Sunday Sabbath because they were of, of Adam. They wanted rest on their terms. They wanted redemption on their terms. They put Christ to rest in order to rest in their own diabolical terms and conditions. But a Sunday Sabbath secured by Christ would come nonetheless, because on the third day, what did he do? He rose from the dead. So the early Christians, you can read this in, in, in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20, uh, even in Acts 20 and 1 Corinthians 16, there are several places where the early Christians took Sunday as the new Christian Sabbath, a day of worship and rest in the finished work of Christ. And so that's really not without controversy. I think the New Testament clearly shows us that. We have a creation Sabbath. We have a Mosaic Sabbath. And guess what we have now? We have the Christian Sabbath. And that transcends and it builds on the rest. So we are told to remember the Sabbath, but which one? How do we obey this command? We remember creation Sabbath, looking back, which is... God's rest, it's a sign of his lordship, a sign of his sovereignty and creation. 
Christ brings that upon himself. The old creation is now a new creation in Christ. So, (laughs) we have a transition time from what Adam had done to what Jesus now does at the beginning of the week. Man's first week was supposed to be rest all along. We keep the redemptive Sabbath holy in terms of Christ who has delivered us from sin and transferred us into his kingdom. That's how you obey the Ten Commandments now. The day of the Lord is connected to the creation story. Saturday was the end of God's creative week. He worked, then he rested. But as Lord of creation, he gave man the gift of work and dominion and rest at the beginning of his week. This was to make sure that man had what he needed in order to serve God in the world. And as we saw, Adam and Eve sinned. Um, Adam and Eve sinned and they mocked this day of the Lord. Jesus, the second Adam, comes and establishes a new creation day of the Lord, the beginning of the week, thus bringing forth the Christian Sabbath. Now, I want to I I I sort of, as we, we're getting close to the end here, I really want, needed more time, but here we are anyway. Sabbath presupposes work and dominion, right? Because you're seizing, but seizing from what? Well, from work. Sabbath presupposes work and dominion. And that dominion, we know, is a subjection of the world to God in his law order. The world is supposed to be obedient to God. Christ came to subject the world to himself, and thus Christ being our Sabbath means that Jesus has secured the work and the rest for us, the very thing Israel had longed for all those years. We need to see Jesus taking all of that repackaging it for the new creation uh, week, for the new creation that he has unfolded on the world with the, with the people of God. So for us to participate in this rest of God is to participate in his sovereign authority as subjects to his kingdom. Okay, that's why the work you do Monday through Saturday matters. It's not divorced from the kingdom. The work you do to build, provide for your family, to, to perhaps start new businesses, the work that you do on your, whether that's, you know, per, pursuing homesteading or pursuing these things, all of these things are intergenerational things for dominion. We should all be building wealth for the kingdom. We should be building wealth for our kids because all of that is connected to the work we're doing in the world to see the gospel transform the world. So we are brought into, thanks to Jesus, we are brought into the Lord's rest, the Lord's kingdom. We are now brought into that as prophets, priests, and kings. Now our work is to be interrupted as a gift so that we can keep track of who we serve and why we serve him. Our work, that's why I still would hold to a Sabbath day being Sunday. And, And I know people will say, well, pastors work on Sunday. Well, kind of. Um, I don't know that I consider this work as much, it is, much, as, much as it is a joy, and, um, but that's a different discussion for a different time. But our work is supposed to be interrupted, and it's interrupted as a gift so that we can keep track of who we are and who we serve. That's the reason for it. And this is for the purposes of dominion in the world, a start of the new creation week, whereby the church advances in order to give rest to an unrested, disheveled culture. We need to rest so that we can show the world what rest looks like, because they don't know. Sabbatical legislation in the Old Covenant looked back to Yahweh's redemption, looked presently at God's creative handiwork and at dominion and work, 
And in Old Testament economy, they looked forward to a permanent rest. That is a deliverance from the sin, excuse me, from the dominion of sin and lawlessness. And the gospel gives us that last piece. We are delivered from that dominion of sin. The gospel reorients us around Christ, who is Torah, who is Sabbath, and who is covenant. Sabbath is also a gift of vice regency. As people who are in Christ, we share in his kingly rule. We keep covenantal time on the dominion calendar as priests and kings one day in seven. We cease from labor knowing our labor, unlike God, isn't finished. But we do know that it will be finished. The enemies of Christ will be footstooled. Sabbath is eschatological. It points us to the final rest of a fully rescued and revived earth. Humanists don't stop. Humanists don't stop because history for them is cyclical and repeated, sort of the karma principle. Humanists don't ever stop. They work and they work and they work because there's no end. It's the treadmill of humanism. But Christianity, we know, teaches a linear view of history that is going somewhere, and that somewhere is the eternal Sabbath rest of a renewed world. So in the New Covenant era, the Sabbath principle is supposed to be a reorientation around the redemption of Christ and the new creation dominion that he brings to the world. So like Jesus, like Jesus, we are supposed to give Sabbath, to give rest, to give healing and relief, and our world needs it right now. Do Christians need to keep the Sabbath? The real question is, should Christians embrace the gift God has given us as we participate with him in the transformation of the world? That's the real question. We start our week with Sabbath because our attitude and posture towards the week ahead is one of faithfulness and justice and mercy and righteousness and godly dominion. Jesus said in Mark 2, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Adam had rejected this gift. Jesus, the second Adam, the true son of man, embraced the gift through his work. And thus, those of us who are in him enjoy the Sabbath gift as his covenantal people. We share in the seizing, which is another way of sharing in the glory. We are seated with Christ, and our task is to tame the world with the gift of Sabbath, of covenant, of redemption, and an unshakable kingdom. And amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray today that you would help us to understand this rest that we're called to. True rest in the physical sense, where we stop and we pause and perhaps we vacate. We go somewhere, we enjoy your creation, we step out of the normal rhythms so that we can acknowledge you. We pray that you would help us to understand that, to practice it, to teach us. To teach us how to serve you with the dominion you have given us in this world. As your prophets, priests, and kings, Lord, I pray this week that we would be set apart, that we would see Monday through Saturday as an opportunity for dominion. God, we want to see the nation transform. Would you help us? Would your spirit be poured out? In Christ's name I pray. Amen.